Welcome to SLU Law Summations, presenting brief looks at legal matters that matter to you by St. Louis University School of Law, located in the heart of downtown St. Louis. Thank you for joining us today for the special live recording for our SLU Law Summations for our Health Law Live series. As COVID cases continue to rise in parts of our country, students are heading back to the classroom and much of our workforce is heading back to the workplace. Meanwhile, politicians and public health officials are embattled over guidelines for doing so safely. I'm Jessica Ciccone, Director of Communications. In this episode, we are joined by Professor Rob Gatter. Rob is a member of our Center for Health Law Studies and a public health expert. Early in the pandemic, he was called upon for his expertise by St. Louis County. Thank you for joining us today, Rob. Hey, it's my pleasure to be here and hi to everybody. So let's just dive right in. There's a lot to cover today. So outside of <laughs> outside of vaccinations, mask mandates have been the biggest tool in the public health toolbox. Here in St. Louis County and city, we have been no stranger to the politics that a mask mandate brings. Can you talk about what is in place here, the county of the city, and how um, those particular mandates have been challenged? Yeah, sir, I'm, I'm happy to do it. So generally speaking, there's no statewide mandate. Um, there is, if you are on the website of the Department of Health and Senior Services, the state public health agency, uh, there's a recommendation that everyone two years old and older wear a mask when they're out in public, regardless of their vaccination status. Uh, and so it is left to local governments to make their decisions. So the city of St. Louis has a mask mandate where and the uh, county of St. Louis has attempted to create a mask mandate, but its enforcement uh, is prohibited right now under a preliminary injunction. Okay, so parents across the country are sending their children back to school. Um, in fact, my kids have been there for a couple of weeks now, but mask, mask, mask mandates and policies from state to state vary and even from district to district. Can you talk about like the difference in policies, like what's a mandate, what, what can we be expected to kind of follow? Yeah, so first of all, there's just variation with respect to whether it's happening at a state level or a local level. Um, uh, so we recently saw that uh, masks, the, Pencil the governor in Pennsylvania um, initially said, I'm not gonna mandate masks for school children. I'll let school districts to de decide to do that. And there was so much difficulty and so many differences that eventually the governor stepped in and said, there will be a mask mandate. Um, so some states have a mask mandate for, uh, for schools mm -hmm. and that happens at the state level. Many others are leaving it to uh, the local level. So in um, the city of St. Louis, for example, there would be a mask mandate merely because schools are indoor public gatherings uh, that would fall under the city's mask mandate. And then separately from that, school districts can have mask mandates. So there are school districts in St. Louis County that have their own mask mandates. Uh, not all of them do, but there are many that do, even though the county has a now void uh, mask mandate. Mm -hmm. And then there's other differences as to whether or not schools are employing a mandate versus a recommendation. Some are strongly recommending, others are mandating. Some are recommending and have a threshold that if we see a certain number or a certain percentage of infections in the school, then the recommendation becomes a mandate. Mm -hmm. 
so that that's another difference. And then, of course, there's differences in the way they enforce them and the exceptions that they create. Generally speaking, there will be exceptions based upon disability accommodations, um, uh, potentially if there's an issue with respect to um, religion, and that can be a difference uh, district to district, policy to policy, in addition to how they're enforcing it. Mm -hmm. So some may have a mandate, but not enforce it very stringently. And others may have a mandate that they have enforce pretty strictly. And so the degree to com of compliance will change as a result. Mm -hmm. And, and how does that impact businesses, retail in particular, um, you know, because they're kind of left to their, you never, it's, it feels like when I go into a store, I'm like uh, looking at something, having to read the sign on the door now every time, because I'm just not sure what, what, what is expected of me. Yeah. So it does get confusing, especially when uh, you're in a jurisdiction like the county where there had been a countywide mask mandate that then was put into abeyance by a preliminary injunction. Um, and so businesses are taking their own individual approaches. Easier to do when you're in a jurisdiction like the city that has uh, a citywide mask mandate uh, that applies to not just public transportation and public buildings, it applies to any time you're indoors uh, at any place that allows the public to come in. And that would include restaurants and bars and uh, dry cleaners and other places that are doing business in the city. So it's true, you can find a patchwork of policies business to business. And just like schools, there's also a patchwork of enforcement. I was in the grocery store recently uh, that says masks are required and has a mask dispenser there. You can just grab one and put it on. Uh, there's no one at the door mm -hmm. making sure that you actually have one on when you come in. Uh, the vast majority of people are wearing them, but not everyone. And I remember watching a person or who, who's clearly employed at the grocery store walking by someone who was unmasked. That person stops them to ask a question about where to find things. And, and the employee says nothing about the fact that they're maskless. Mm -hmm. So it's what is posted on the door, but then there's also their mechanism of enforcement. And this right. particular grocery store, I actually did follow up with the manager out of curiosity mm -hmm. and said, so what, what's the policy? And and he was willing to tell me, which was that the, the policy grocery store chain wide is that we will require at the door, but we will not enforce when people are inside with us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, that's that's kind of that's somewhere between a recommendation and a mandate. Yeah, um, I love that you took that your your uh, your expertise out on the road. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can only do that when I'm not shopping with family members because. <laughs> So, so, you know, the issue of masks in schools have also, I mean, it's also been really highly politicized um, with governors in states uh, like Florida, I think in Texas, banning mandates. Um, how effective are these bans? I think, and I can't recall, I think one of them may, I'm not sure if they're still in place. Um, so Generally speaking, they're going to, they, as a matter of law, they can be effective. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, in Texas, um, the governor bans mask mandates at a local level. So that takes that tool out of the hands of um, county executives, mayors, uh, boards of aldermen, school districts, etc. cetera. Um, and the state Supreme Court in Texas has upheld that the governor has the authority to issue a mask mandate and that this is a, or I'm sorry, has the authority to issue an order that prohibits mask mandates and that it's enforceable. Um, there is a 
some complications in, in, in another lawsuit that's been, been working, but essentially that will get worked out to say the governor has that authority. And I think generally that's true across the board. So the, from a legal power standpoint, the way to think of it is that uh, states have the greatest public health power because states have the police power. Mm-hmm. Um, how that's divided between a, a, the executive branch and the legislative branch at the, um, at the state level varies from state to state and makes a difference. And then local um, public health authority is delegated public health authority. It comes from the state and it's delegated to that political subdivision. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are many different ways in which that happens. And so, but gen- when you think about that governance structure, um, depending on how the delegation works, if it leaves oversight still in the hands at, at the state level, then that would mean at the state level, there could be essentially a preemption mm-hmm. of local authority to issue uh, mask mandates. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're, we're, we're seeing that. And we're not just seeing that with masks, but we're certainly seeing that with mask mandates. So that would be, Texas is consistent with that. Mm-hmm. Florida is actually an exception. Um, there, a, a, um, a trial, a, a state court um, ruled that there is a patient, because there is a parent's bill of rights with respect to public education, uh, the court ruled that that delegation from the state to school boards was fairly complete. So there's a parent's bill of rights and the parent's bill of rights states that um, only local school districts can, through a certain procedure, uh, take actions that could um, impede or limit those parental rights. And because of that language, the argument was from the, uh, the, the decision from the court was that the state had really delegated all of its authority to school districts mm-hmm. to overcome or limit those rights. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, um, the local school district still retained all of the authority and the governor didn't have that authority. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll tell you, you, can't, you, you still have to consider the politics because in Texas, mm-hmm. given the surge that's happened, the governor is not enforcing. The governor came out and said, all right, so we have this authority, but I'm going to set aside my ban on mask mandates for, for the time being because there was such a surge. Right. Additionally, um, it raises questions about um, how we divide up political accountability. Certainly, the governor and the executive branch is politically accountable, but so too are the elected members of a school board. Mm-hmm. And so um, the politics of usurping the authority of an elected official on a school board is in play. And I think that's possibly also affecting the political calculus that the governor in Texas is making, even though the legal authority is there. Mm-hmm. So another question as far as legal authority, I, you know, comparing these um, things about, oh, they're going to um, withhold salaries of, of uh, school officials. I mean, I guess that seems, I guess that's legal if they're private or public schools, but that just, I mean, is it? <laughs> well, again, it's going to be, it, it, this would require sort of an, a, almost a jurisdiction by jurisdiction evaluation of mm-hmm. what, dele, what what's the language of the delegation that happened uh, from the state to the um, local school board or local school official if it's not a board. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, what are the, the conditions that are set uh, by statute and rule for receiving public funding? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, 
that determines then the discretion that the administrator, let's say this, a state's secretary of education or the governor themselves, or even the state legislature, unless they're prepared to go in and change uh, statutory authority would have with respect to withholding money and how it's withheld. Mm -hmm. uh, my understanding is that places where that's happened, most notably in Florida, uh, it's difficult to say, there isn't the authority to, to literally withhold the paycheck of the uh, members of the school board if they're paid or of the school superintendent. Mm -hmm. Instead, you're, instead it, the governor was trying to pull back uh, an amount of money given to the school that was equivalent to that salary. Mm -hmm. But ultimately mm -hmm. you're just pulling it, that amount of money out of the school system generally. Right, okay, that makes a little bit more sense. And I, I assume, and I guess I probably shouldn't assume anything during this pan pandemic, but um, that this is only gonna apply, that those kind of bans would only apply to, to public schools, right? Because they wouldn't have any jurisdiction over like a private school per se. Well, no, that's, there are, um, in most states still have um, authority over aspects of essentially that, that a, a private school still needs to be meeting mm. uh, oh, standards yeah. mm -hmm. uh, so as to be recognized, mm -hmm. right, as mm -hmm. uh, a, a um, their graduates are recognized as having completed what would mm -hmm. count as a high school education in that particular state. They're subject to fewer rules, that's for sure, but they mm -hmm. are able to set rules. So mm -hmm. it is possible through a a state agency, for example, to require um, masks or vaccinations that would apply to both public and private educational institutions. Mm -hmm. Okay. So here in Missouri, we have an interesting issue going on. So our attorney general has filed this class action lawsuit against school districts in Columbia, which is in the central part of the state for those who don't know, um, for their mask mandates. What is happening there? And do you think this lawsuit will move forward? So I do think the lawsuit will move forward. I think it's really ill-advised and I do think it'll drum up the same politics that I was talking about with respect to um, who should, which elected officials should be um, managing school policy. Mm -hmm. Let me get to that in a minute. There are some complexities here with respect to overlapping law. And um, so the lawsuit. So, so a couple of things are happening. So Columbia, Missouri is where the University of Missouri is. It's just north of Jefferson City, the state capital. It's in the central part of the state, east, west, north, and south. Um, and the um, city of Columbia, its legislative uh, branch of local government voted not to have uh, mask mandates generally in the city. Mm. So that was an affirmative vote. Uh, the school district voted to have masks when there's also a state law that is new. Uh, it became a, it was passed in mid-June and became effective immediately. Mm -hmm. And it was a, a, a pullback of a local executive power during a public health emergency mm -hmm. to issue of any variety of public health orders, whether it's a safer at home, stay at home kind of order, an order that limits what, how restaurants and bars participate, a mask mandate, vaccination requirements. It could be anything that's in response to the threat of an infectious disease. Mm -hmm. And this new state law shifts power from 
the local executive branch to the local legislative branch. Um, and this is how it works. So what counts as an order is virtually anything. Um, so don't get too hung up for those of you who are thinking of an order as a court order or an administrative order and those definitions under um, whether it's civil procedure or administrative procedure. Instead, an order under the statute is really defined as any action taken by an executive official or a local public uh, health board or even a, a, a political subdivision of any sort uh, in response to a, a real or perceived um, disease threat that's designed to prevent the spread of that. So that would count as an order. And the executive branch, whether it's through the elected, say a mayor, or it's through the public health official appointed um, as part of the, the mayor's cabinet can issue an order, but can only last for 30 days. So it has an automatic sunset. In addition, the local legislative uh, branch has the authority under this state statute to rescind the order immediately uh, with a majority vote, a simple majority vote. At the same time, that local legislative branch has the ability to extend beyond the 30 days any such order, but it can only do it 30 days at a time. Uh, so this is a brand new statute. Um, it's being tested for the first time with respect, it's the very statute that is at issue uh, in the lawsuit the Missouri Attorney General brought with respect to the mask mandate mm -hmm. in St. Louis County. Okay, that's what I was gonna say. This sounds pretty familiar, all right. Right. The lawsuit that was brought by the Missouri Attorney General against the Columbia Public School System was based in part on the same statute. Mm -hmm. And it says a school board is a political subdivision. Its mask mandate is an order. It's been issued in response to a disease threat. Therefore, mm -hmm. and this it's essentially a, a request for declaratory judgment. Doesn't it fall under the statute? Doesn't that mean the mask mandate and the schools can only last for 30 days? Doesn't it mean Shouldn't we ask whether or not the city's uh, vote not to have a mask mandate is effectively a rescission, a, a rescission of the mask mandate under the statute? Mm -hmm. And um, even if it's not, doesn't it expire in 30 days unless the, the city council takes an action to affirmatively um, extend it for another 30 days? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's that's count two of the lawsuit that the attorney general has brought. Um, and that's a complicated question. The mm -hmm. um, orders that fall under the statute that create this limit, that fall under the limitation of 30 days or can be rescinded by the local legislative arm are orders that restrict access to businesses, schools, or churches. And so restrict access is the question. If it's a recommendation, it's not restricting access to school, but the argument from the AG is that a mask requirement to enter a business, a school or a church uh, is a restriction on that access. And that uh, was the basis for the uh, St. Louis circuit judge to grant the preliminary injunction with respect to the St. Louis County mandate, mask mm -hmm. mandate saying, I haven't decided yet, but on the merits, it seems like that would count as a restriction. 
Well, I believe that's the same logic then that the Missouri Attorney General is bringing to the lawsuit saying that the school board, a political subdivision, has issued an order that restricts access to schools. If you don't have it, you can't be on school grounds. That's a restriction, and therefore it falls under the statute. That's the issue. But you know what? A whole lot of other things, policies, rules, regulations that would count as orders under the statute um, do the same thing. For example, there's just the simple policy that every school has, whether during a, a disease emergency or not, if you're sick, if you have symptoms of an illness as a student, don't come to school. Mm -hmm. Arguably, that same policy would sunset in 30 days. Not just the policy as it applies to COVID, but with respect yeah. to anything, because the state statute encompasses it and it's, the state statute is not limited to COVID. Mm -hmm. And this is where I think we get into the politics. Um, now we're not switching, the state statute is effectively now taking um, authority from one board of elected officials, the school board, mm -hmm. to another set of elected officials, the city council. Mm -hmm. And that's not really what the statute, at least that wasn't the motivations behind the statute. Right. The motivations behind the statute were to shift from the executive branch and particularly where authority is being exercised by one mayor, one mm -hmm. county executive, or one public health official, mm -hmm. and shifting it to uh, the legislative branch um, at the local level that answers directly to the electorate. Mm -hmm. Well, school board officials, regardless of which branch they're in, answer directly to their local electorate. And I mean local. Now in Columbia, the city and the school districts are roughly the same geographic territory, but that's not true in the county where there are lots of school districts that make up this large county. The large county may elect members of the county council, but it's a much smaller political subdivision, the district that is electing the members of the school board. And so I think I'm no political scientist, but I think there are serious politics as to who makes policies, what elected officials make rules mm -hmm. with respect mm -hmm. to schools um, and which ones do so with respect to a pandemic when none of them have to have any sort of public health education in order to be elected into their positions. Mm -hmm. So it is a mess. Do you think it's going to widen? Like, is it going to include other school districts or? I, that's the goal. So uh -huh. interestingly, there's lots of interesting parts of this, of this complaint. Um, mm -hmm. The complaint also seeks to certify a class of defendants. And that class of defendants would be every public school district in the state of Missouri that has issued a mask mandate. Wow. So right now it's the Columbia Public Schools that are named, but it mm -hmm. could encompass every school district in public school district in Missouri that has uh, issued a mask mandate. And that's quite a number. Um, would it only be, so it's any, not just the ones that have a mask mandate that conflicts with the city or county mandate as right. it does in Columbia? Right, because remember there's two aspects. Mm -hmm. One aspect, regardless of what the local legislative um, branch has said with respect to mask mandates, the statute imposes a 30-day sunset. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that could be then applied to any mask mandate issued by any school district even if uh, the local legislative branch is completely on board. Mm -hmm. 
if nothing else, it would suggest that that local legislative branch every 30 days is gonna have to renew the mask mandate for the entire school year if they want it to be in place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And each one of those would be subjected presumably to challenge on, as, on to whether or not it is rationally based in existing evidence of the pandemic at the time. Mm-hmm. Complicated. So it's complicated. <laughs> the lawsuit has another administrative, for those who, who, who are thinking of this from an administrative law standpoint, the actually mm-hmm. the first count that in the uh, Missouri governor's, sorry, the Missouri AG's complaint against school districts is that it was arbitrary and capricious to have a mask mandate in the first place, mm-hmm. uh, specifically arguing that, that um, it, the school districts have failed to take into account facts about the transmission of COVID and the effectiveness of masks. Um, I was interviewed by a local television news agency and I just could not bite my tongue and said, I think it's, it's an abomination to make that argument. It's mm-hmm. ridiculous. Um, most school districts uh, link to the Missouri Department of Health and Senior Services recommendation right. that everybody out in public two years old and older be wearing a mask mm-hmm. when they're indoors. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to say that uh, a school district is in in the state is acting arbitrarily if they're looking up the recommendation of the state's public health department and following. Right, right. Um, oftentimes, school districts will link to multiple sources mm-hmm. uh, recommendations from, let's say, P- uh, a national pediatricians organization to mm-hmm. the CDC mm-hmm. to um, to their own state's Department of Health. Some go farther and will link to actual actual systematic reviews that show data about uh, changes in infection rates with respect to school children, hospitalization Mm -hmm. rates with respect Mm -hmm. to school children and um, the effectiveness of masks. Uh, The data is abundant. Um, I think we all know that since schools have started nationally, we've seen uh, levels of infection that in some states have shut down schools already. It only took, yeah. oh, I just lost mm-hmm. the light in my office. <laughs> um, uh, that shut down some schools. There's a, at least one school district in Tennessee that mm-hmm. two weeks in had to immediately shut down. Mm-hmm. And they're not even doing virtual learning because so many of the teachers were sick that virtual or otherwise, they just don't have a teacher uh, for many of the students. Mm-hmm. Um, the CDC is reporting additional um, uh, exposure and infections with respect to children. And the surge in hospitalizations that we're seeing also includes um, uh, children, um, including especially at the high school uh, level. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that part of the lawsuit has any legs to stand on. The one yeah. that's based upon the statute, however, mm-hmm. you know, that's much trickier. And I think that's more likely to be resolved at a political level. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm hoping it is, but it's working its way, you know, it's heading towards exactly the same um, treatment as the, um, as the lawsuit that was brought against the county mandate. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's move on from this because it's giving this mother of two uh, a little bit of anxiety. So let's try to, let's focus on that. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. Um, how, so let's focus on some, like maybe some positives or predictions. Okay. So how long do you predict that we're going to be dealing with these mandates and what, like, what are the next steps? Like, when do we start coming out of them or when do, I mean, like, 
is it a, you know, when we start vaccinating children? You know, like I don't know. Right. Um, so there's a number of of things that that are positive within the, within the negative. Mm-hmm. Um, it is unfortunate that, that, that the major thrust of the news is negative, mm-hmm. that we're seeing infections go up. Um, virtually all of them are, are with respect to the Delta variant in the unvaccinated uh, population. Um, there, those infections and those hospitalizations are starting to overwhelm hospitals. There was just a news report this morning about um, a region of 10 hospital systems in northern Idaho needing to go to crisis standards of care because uh, they have now officially run run short on resources and they're having to triage uh, beds and ventilators and other equipment. Um, But within that, we are finding that that there's a teachable moment that happens with those who come to a hospital infected, uh, that they're willing uh, to get vaccinated and that can begin to make a difference in the overall vaccination population. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have some insider information. My wife happens to be an emergency room doc who mm-hmm. provides care in different locations in Missouri and outside of Missouri, large hospitals, small hospitals, mm-hmm. rural communities and, and suburban. And um, she has reported and other physicians in emergency physicians in face group Facebook groups have reported that there is a group of individuals who's willing to get vaccinated, but they're not, they, it needs to be so private that they can be sure that other family members of theirs or neighbors will not know or be able to surmise that they might have been vaccinated. Wow. And that's the politicization yeah. and pushing more vaccinations out into um, local physicians' offices and clinics will help with that. Mm-hmm. Um, not only is that someone that individuals trust, but it is that private place. You could be there for a variety of different reasons. Mm-hmm. Oh, I went, turns out I, I, I don't have COVID. I was talking to the doctor about this, that, or another thing. But if the physician is able to talk to them about vaccine, they're in a moment where they're willing to take the vaccine. When you have them and it's now a yes, you want to be able to give the vaccine as soon as possible. That's becoming yeah. more possible. So that's good. We should continue mm-hmm. to see our vaccination rates go up as a result. And then uh, additionally, there is research on the horizon where we could get an emergency use authorization for um, use of the vaccines in uh, all school-aged children. And that would open up another group to eligibility uh, within which presumably there's at least 50%, if not more, mm-hmm. would, would, take the, uh, would take the vaccination. Right, yeah. Well, you've given us a lot to... Um carry over to think about and then to carry over onto our, um, I know we, we had some, a couple questions in the chat, but um, the podcast that we're doing next week with um, Professor Pendo, where we're going to dig in a bit more onto these um, vaccine requirements, particularly um, in the workplace. Um, so yeah, thank you for joining us today, Rob. Um, yeah. This has been really, it is given me just a tiny bit of anxiety but also clarified a few things as to like where we're going and what we can expect and obviously the the complex legal issues that we're facing in this pandemic so yeah it's true and you would it's so odd to watch old very old law in many cases be litigated and to be surprised still that we're not ready from a a statutory standpoint, a regulatory standpoint, 
for a pandemic when as a country we've faced so many pandemics in the past you'd figure we would have laws that would be clear enough but um there needs to be greater clarity with respect to our laws and that's part of what we're seeing and otherwise you know the politics is, is at least as fraught if not more so than is the law mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so much to think about <laughs> well thank you rob i appreciate it yeah. Thank you for joining us for SLU Law Summations, produced by St. Louis University School of Law. 